<laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. Right in. It's interesting starting place. Yeah. 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 A lot of people believe that there is. A lot of yeah. people are are um, convinced that there is. And we know that there are a lot of people doing terrible things out there. So yeah, it's not completely implausible. But what does that mean? Yeah. And what does that look like? And how do we know? Yeah. Yeah. How do we know? That's a how do we know? Question. Yeah, it's a it's a huge question. Um, mm -hmm. Gosh, well, welcome everyone to Monday's Solid Ground live stream, Monday, February 26th. I think we're on number 57. And it's lovely to see you all. We have Karen King with us again today. And we're going to have uh, an extension of the conversation we started a couple of weeks ago. There was just so much more to talk about that we thought we needed to, we had, we had to have another go. Uh, Deborah, would you like to start us off with the introduction to Solid Ground? Yes. Okay, so Solid Ground is a peer support community for anyone concerned about the imposition of critical social justice, aka woke, and or COVID mandates in their workplace, university, children's school, or community. We offer weekly online peer support groups in which members share ideas, thoughts, and support for how to navigate the impact of these ideologies and answer the question, where do we go from here? You can join one of our groups for only $5 a month. To find out how to join our community, please visit solidgroundsupport.com. Please note, Solid Ground does not provide psychotherapy or legal advice, and nothing we do should be construed as such. Thanks, Deborah. So before we get started, do you guys want to read a couple of the viewer comments from last time we had Karen on? I thought that that might be kind of cool. Um, we had a lot of positive feedback from that discussion. I think people were really excited to hear about a, uh, a non-woke yeah. counseling resource for counseling interns who need supervision or hours and so that was uh, that really resonated with a lot of people um forest hill mom says what an amazing thoughtful guest there was so much clarity in this episode i hope that a program like this surfaces in california soon mm. and, yes yeah. me too <laughs> um reality check says the last therapist story Karen was telling was horrific because I bet every therapist in Canada fits that description and has no problem getting hired. Do you remember mm. that story you told about a, a prospective hire for you? Yes. Yes. I remember it vividly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think that will, that is an interesting relationship to what we'll talk about today and who, who needs to be held accountable. Yeah. Good question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. Mm -hmm. That's true. Uh, don't argue with idiots. I like this name. This was excellent. Karen <laughs> is doing some amazing work and yes. Uh, oh, that's nice. And yes, you help lay the groundwork, Leslie. You've been responsible for much of my sanity, such as it is during the last year. Oh, that's really nice. And I, I really do like the name. Don't argue. I need to remind, I need to put that on my computer yeah. Yeah. like along the top as a note for myself. Um, Let's see. True suffering. Uh, this is another pilot one says true suffering is the cornerstone of true empathy. Pain is the price you pay for loving. I thought that was, mm, yeah, was a, was a really beautiful sentiment. Mm. Um, and then Dolly seven, six, three, nine said, do you go, gals know about Carrie Smith? She's right up your mm. alley, huge podcast orienting woke to reality. And I just had this really great conversation with Carrie that is up on the channel now and we have her coming on to talk with us next week so we're going to have her in the live stream with us next week so yeah carrie's fantastic 
That's great. I just listened to that interview with her and felt a lot of uh, simpatico, especially when you're talking about spiritual experiences. I reached out to her and I was like, let's talk. Oh, good. Oh, good. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, I've I've been listening to her for a long time. Um, She was really helpful to me when I was going through graduate school. Her and her um, former podcast co-host, Carter, Mm -hmm. were a great uh, bastion of sanity for me. So Mm. speaking of sanity, the mental health profession has been (laughs) long implicated in all kinds of bizarre things. And so what is sanity? Who determines what sanity is? What is mental health? What does it mean to be correctly oriented toward reality? Mm. And um, I am reading, I'm actually listening on audiobook to this book called Mad in America. Uh-huh. I think the author is Robert Whitaker. Is that right? Uh, I have to look that up. Maybe I'll, if I, I'll link it underneath the video when I look that up later. And it's a reminder. I think every psychology student spends a lot of time studying the history of what psychology has been responsible for. Yeah. And this book is a really stark reminder of the horrible ways that people have been treated in the name of restoring sanity or upholding some kind of mental, I don't know, standard and determining who's right and who's wrong. And so bad therapy has been around for a long time. And one of the things that we were talking about at the end of our last discussion, Karen, was the satanic panic, the ritual abuse, the recovered memories, the the DID sort of dissociative identity disorder with the alters, the multiple personalities. This thing was a big episode in our culture a couple of decades ago. And when I was in undergrad, we were the the way that we were talking about this was that this was just a scandal of psychology. That this was a fictitious disorder. The DID thing was just completely fictitious. And then when I went to graduate school, we didn't address it at all. We didn't talk about that at all. So I don't know what the contemporary perspective is on that in mental health. Where, but I do see these alters all the time. Like Benjamin just did this video recently where he talked about this, and it's quite shocking, kind of funny, but also not like these. You know, it's concerning that people are are being taken seriously with these what seem like a lot of times ploys for attention, but. How do you know what's real? How do you know? And so uh, that's enough of preamble. I, Karen, you want to kind of set this up and, and give us a little bit of your perspective on this? And Jennifer's Sorry, dogs does. too. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Um, <laughs> gosh, I have so many thoughts about this because I, I think we're living in the decade of what is real. Mm-hmm. And so it it makes sense that these themes are coming back now because I mean, coercion, coercive interviewing, manipulating children, um, really impacting whole communities, uh, travesty imposed on people's lives where they're imprisoned. I mean, all of those are such high stakes, the things that happened in the satanic panic. And I think we're looking at, uh, we're headed towards that soon in mental health and medical um, because of the gender ideology imposition into that. So I think it's really relevant. And and last week we talked, or last time we talked about it in terms of 
someone was, I think it was you, Deborah, that you were talking about uh, therapeutic cascade, therapy cascade. And it made me think about what I was experiencing as a teen, which I'll tell you in a minute um, more about, because I think it relates to why I'm so impassioned about this topic and living in reality and helping helping counselors really have counseling skills. And I didn't really consciously realize that until it came out of my mouth when we talked and I've been reflecting on it since. Um, because I was a teen and I was 16 in 1987 and in Texas, South Texas. And um, it was the, I lived in Houston and I might've been 17 actually. So uh, there was the whole movement of John Bradshaw which was toxic families, dysfunctional families. He really, he coined the term dysfunctional families. And um, I was a very depressed, suicidally depressed teen from 16 to really 20 and went through all kinds of things that I'll, I'll tell you more about. But basically as a teen, I, I experienced a lot of depression I went away to a boarding school, almost didn't graduate. It was my senior year of high school. It was a dance school, North Carolina School of the Arts. And I almost didn't make it. I didn't walk. I took my tests from home because I was so depressed. And at that point, I found the John Bradshaw Institute and started going there. And uh, the narrative I was given was a huge relief, which was, it wasn't me that was crazy. It was my family. And that was really, at that point, helpful to hear because I was had so much self-hatred and shame. And it, it broke me out of that. But I did do regressive hypnotherapy. And the point of that was to um, get to the root of my birth trauma. And so, you know, you can see the psychological framework, which is uh, the family is suspect. And in some ways, that can be helpful for those of us that blame ourselves. And of course, in some ways, if you don't have a family that is toxic or dysfunctional, maybe just a mismatch or uh, healthy individuals that aren't reading you the right way. It's a setup to really view the family as toxic. And um, like most things, it's very nuanced. So I did experience, I went back and I, I was 17 and I was um, hypnotized to remember this birth trauma. And I remember hearing something like thunder and voices yelling. And the therapist told me, yes, your parents were arguing. You had, you were flooded with the hormones from anger. And so this had a big impact on you. So she made this connection for me and, um, my depression intensified and I, this is a long story I'm realizing. So let me just <laughs> shorten it a little bit to say I was then, uh, went to a psychiatrist. So this is in the eighties. Bipolar was the big diagnosis. I think they had finally found or thought they had found something that could uh, help a medical issue. So at 17, I had a half hour uh, diagnostic interview with a psychiatrist who said I was bipolar one and um, that I was experiencing mania. Now I was 17 years old and I was in a dance school and a boarding school um, and gave me lithium and, and MAOI inhibitors. So very, very serious toxic medications um, that had to be monitored regularly and had huge metabolic impacts. I was a dancer, so it was, it was a real challenge, but I was so suicidal and didn't know to question anything because I was 17. 
And um, I continued to be very depressed. And I went to an inpatient center sponsored by John Bradshaw, got a scholarship, went in for a month. And it was there that I met, uh, it was a group, all group therapy. And I met two young women my age who claimed to have been ritually, satanically, sexually abused and um, had 400 altars each. And the striking part of that, not as I'm not saying that didn't happen to anyone. And I'm not saying that a resulting um, dissociative disorder happened. But what is striking now as an adult to look back at that is that in group therapy, what we heard were the therapists encouraging them telling the details of their stories and making connections for them. So I heard at 17 stories of uh, baby sacrifice and drinking blood. And then after group therapy, they would suddenly develop three more altars that needed to be introduced to the group. And so it was a very um, fashionable and maybe there was a lot of secondary gain. There was a lot of popularity that they could get by being special. I see that now, that's my filter now. So what was concerning is that they weren't uh, disindoctrinating possibly these clients and helping them integrate their altars. They were enforcing the story. So I'll pause there. Wow. That's, uh, that's, you know, one of the things I guess you don't, how do you decide how skeptical to be in these situations? How do you decide that something is, that is, is this true? Is this uh, implanted or influenced by the therapist? How yeah. do we know who to believe in these situations? Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost, I mean, the thing about therapy is usually really whatever the issue, the treatment's going to be the same, you know, uh, relationally uh, acceptance, uh, a perspective on reality, managing symptoms and skewed thinking about it, um, maybe becoming more embodied. So I would say, I don't know if it's about belief necessarily, but about how successfully how successful the treatment is. And in some ways it reminds me so much of the gender ideology with children is that um, there's a specialness and a status that these folks got by having this horrible thing happen to them. And it's very similar now is, there's, there's a, you could say coercion with social media and indoctrination, and they get a lot of specialness as we've all heard and, and read about and a sense of belonging, but it's not recognized as it used to be as a mental health issue. It's now reality. It's like if, if the satanic panic, if there hadn't been skepticism to it, then we would all, um, still be maybe doing something different with our children that like the uh, the documentary that came out in 2022 about the woman who created the underground uh, scenario for protecting children and ended up being a zealot for that and kidnapping them. And so I guess it's not about what is true, but it's like, what, how do you treat it successfully? How do you view it compassionately and help people live in the world? Mm -hmm. You know Does what makes sense? So it just strikes me as this encouragement and the therapist doing the meaning 
making. Like I actually, you're reminding me, I actually got trained and certified in like hypnotherapy, like 30 years ago or something. And we never learned about forcing any narrative on anything. It was a very what's arising kind of thing. And so however, some people chose to uh, decide it was their job to affirm this thing, um, to tell people they know what this means. Um, I don't know how much that's because it was trendy or what that says about the psychology of the practitioners who did that. Uh, there was a people got some kind of approval or clout by being affirmers. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, I know there was specialized training at some point between like 1986 and 1990 um, mm -hmm. for psychological forensic investigators. And I, I've read some of the transcripts of these investigations and they were just, they're not subtle. They're very coercive and, it, it made me think about therapy today and affirming care. And it is, a, it's a similar model and that the assumption is um, believe the children, which mm. like, no one wants to say, hey, don't believe the children, <laughs> you know, um, that makes you a really suspect sort of character to not believe your children. But at the same time, um, holding reality. Again, it's holding reality and asking questions like, how did you come to this decision? What are the other things happening in your life? All the things that we're not allowed to say now as therapists that need to be explored. You know, one of the things that I, I think is, is if, uh, I guess the satanic panic, I, I would like to know exactly what that is. Cause that's a phrase that I've heard, but I'm not exactly sure what that refers to. I think that I, I have the sense that there were lots of people saying that there was abuse happening, but that seems like a, like an investigative problem more than a mental health problem. Like, is there some corroboration of these claims? Because we know that there's child trafficking we know that there's pornography being made with children in it and these terrible things are happening so is i guess just to uh, to really go into the substance of the complaint is mm -hmm. there has there ever been any effort to find out what this thing is that people are referring to uh, and i i'm gonna just i guess as a counterpoint i i used to listen to what's the guy sam harris I used to enjoy his show and then he brought on a person who does her whole back her whole job is to uh invalidate the claims of anti-vaxxers mm. and this mm. was pre-covid so this is before we were in this covid vax kerfuffle whatever um <laughs> that's such a derogatory word but just to gloss over it i was the parent of a vaccine injured child and I had come to be aware of a lot of concerns with our childhood vaccine system mm -hmm. and the, the CDC recommendations. And I had a very different perspective on these issues than I'd had prior to my kid being injured and doing a lot of research. So I, I came to be a vaccine skeptic and somebody who takes each pharmaceutical product very seriously, weighing the pros and cons, instead of somebody who just adopts a schedule in full because I'm told to by some authority. But the way that this guest and Sam Harris, the guest's name is Renee DeResta, talked about oh. this was they just pathologized 
vaccine skeptics. They just said, why would they think that? Oh, I think it's because they're narcissistic. I think it's because mm. they're, or, or they're, they're very mm. foolish. They're just basically they're idiots who are being swayed by a Russian disinformation campaign, but they never once said, well, what are their complaints? What are mm. their concerns? Can we talk right. about what their concerns are before we just call them delusional? So it was just this yeah. like, oh, they're just Dismissal. a bunch of delusional idiots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you know, you can get into the substance of the complaints or the concerns, mm -hmm. and then you could mm -hmm. debate each one. And maybe they're wrong yeah. on some of them, and maybe they're right on some of them. And maybe this is a real complex conversation. So before just saying all these people who say that they experience child abuse are just right. kooky and delusional, right? well, is there something to it? Is there, are there people who are the survivors of like an underground porn ring? Yeah, and they call it satanic. I mean, but, or, yeah. but I guess I just want to understand a, a little bit about that and maybe steel man their argument a little bit and see what that's about. And, and let me just say, I am not an expert. Oh, there goes my camera. I'll come back. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful photo. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having trouble with my camera. Oh, that's okay. Um, we can hear you fine. You can get okay. it back up when you have a chance. Yeah, let me, hmm. let me just see. Well, Karen's doing that, by the way, that Renee DeRest is the one that's been involved in these other censorship related activities with the Twitter files and such. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Matt Taibbi's oh. writing about her all the time. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. She's uh, she was just she basically came on to Sam Harris's program. And I had I really had a lot of respect for him prior to that because he would take each issue apart very analytically and really give everything a lot of um a lot of consideration and with this issue i was like how can you be so um dismissive of one side of the argument it's like we're gonna we're just gonna pathologize the questioning of this pharmaceutical class yeah. like you just yeah. can't if you question this there's something wrong with you <laughs> and i thought this is very different than his other mm. perspectives so I, you know, I'm not an expert. I've done a little bit of reading simply because I'm obsessed with cults and, mm. and am a survivor of a cult as well in the midst of all oh, this. So I have this real interest yeah. in that. Um, but I think you, you really named what the issue is, is that it's nuanced. Like when in my reading and I was listening to a long podcast on the CBC, um, whose name I don't remember right now. Um, about the a, a big Saskatchewan scandal that was one of the first in the early 90s, is that in these cases, a lot of them were tossed out because there was absolutely no proof. And also in these cases, some sexual abuse might have been happening, but then there was also the, the over layer, maybe cultural, um, maybe kids had seen this on TV. There's no consensus on this, really, from what I can tell, is that there was they were influenced to then add the satanic level. And um, so I think, as as usual, it's complicated. I mean, I keep bringing it back to a, a gender uh, ideological affirming stance for a child, but it strikes me as so similar that you can't just say all of your issues are this you have to explore all of the things and assume that they are real for the person and then have a bigger picture. And it's like in that, in that time period, um, because whatever was the zeitgeist in the culture, they saw sexual abuse and then it became satanic panic only after the children were re-interviewed and re-interviewed and re-interviewed and re-interviewed. Yeah. 
Yeah. But, there, yeah, there was that very famous case with um, a couple, um, Dan and Fran Keller, mm. who were accused of the sort of ritualized sex abuse at a daycare center they owned. I think this was back in the 80s or 90s. And they ended up spending 21 years in jail. And there were really crazy claims that there was this network of tunnels underneath the daycare center. Um, subsequently, they were released, cleared of all charges and awarded over $3 million in damages. And the examining physician had even acknowledged that mistakes were made um, mm. in the forensic examination. And, and yeah. no, there were never any tunnels found. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. So I think, I 100% think that um, child sexual abuse and trafficking has happened, continues to happen, continues to be a very real problem. But I am very skeptical about the, um, you know, alleged satanic aspects of it. And I certainly don't believe it was ever some kind of widespread um, societal phenomenon where all these kids were being satanically abused. I think that that was one of those sort of um, I think it was a more a phenomenon of hysteria because I don't know that really any of those cases were, it was ever proven that there was this sort of organized group of Satanists doing this to children. I also wonder if I'm just thinking of the zeitgeist in terms of things like civil coming out the movie, we had like the omen mm. exorcist, like I, there was something in, I don't know if that was the yeah. late seventies or early eighties, mm -hmm. but there was something about like just weird satanic creepy. I, yeah. I don't know yeah. how, that, how yeah. that might've factored in. Like we don't have those yeah. types of films so much now. I don't think, I don't know. I don't look at horror genre, but um, <laughs> that's oh, we do. floating around. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know quite to that extent. Like that was like, I just could hear the sound of like the exorcist yeah. sound or something. Right. You know, it's like, it's like, I don't, I, I was thinking of it. There's so many cultural layers, right? Because uh, women were going back into the workforce that we needed, like we needed two workers around that time. This is a theory I've heard. And so this was really the first time that daycare was being utilized in this way. And so there was a lot of fear about safety and daycare. And so there was that layer and then add on top of it, maybe a moralistic response to the wild psychedelic 60s and that there was this sort of over overlay of Catholicism and supernatural. I don't know, maybe it was the way our culture could process uh, psychedelic expansive consciousness mm. exploration and maybe a warning about it. There's so well, many that's things. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting tie-in. I, I tend to think that also people, people want evil to be more evil than it is they want it to be more mystical mm. yeah and th that i think that mm. the what is really evil is just transactional cynical using of other people for your own ends but sometimes it mm -hmm. it it feels like you almost need it to be a, a mystical boogeyman demon yeah. presence and yeah i'm not just i'm not saying that that doesn't exist it's just not something mm -hmm. that i've seen but i do see people needing to try to come to grips with the fact that people can do evil things to each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, think we all, astute. yeah, I think we all want evil to be much more obvious so that we can identify it and protect ourselves yeah. from it. And, you know, the movie Sybil, which refers to um, 
is based on the life of Shirley Mason, mm-hmm. um, a, a young woman who supposedly had multiple personalities. That movie's been entirely debunked and the, um, the person on which it was based is, has acknowledged that those personalities were not actually real and her ther- she and her therapist were sort of collaborating to create this wow. yeah mm. yeah and that movie was really influential too yeah, yeah. um and i just, i think it's really interesting that different disorders sort of come in and out of vogue and by yeah. saying that i don't mean that in a way to minimize pain of people who are actually experiencing some form of disorder mm. but there was a big whoosh of, um, you know, this sort of tidal wave of people that allegedly had multiple personality disorder mm-hmm. and all allegedly stemming from really horrible abuse, sometimes ritualized abuse. And, you know, um, I think that now the gender dysphoria and certainly that rapid onset gender dysphoria, it's sort of like the new, the new multiple personality disorder or the new eating disorder, or maybe, um, akin to, um, you know, self-harming behavior, the, the cutting, that was a really big thing back when I was in school. And also when I first entered the field. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing that is so sad is that it is, it has, it's fashionable and our field is susceptible to these things. That is the really difficult thing. Is oh yes, and that's and I would I'd love for us to get to the bottom of that. Um, but you know the 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 travesty for me, which was personally and I think why I I feel so strongly about rapid onset gender dysphoria dysphoria and all that is that um, they I was I was being uh, treated and I was within the a community that was treating a fashionable disorder. So bipolar was fashionable, MPD, uh, satanic ritual abuse was fashionable. And what was being missed is that I was actually being sexually abused at the boarding school that I was in. Mm -hmm. And no one had asked me about that. And I didn't know to offer it because I was just receiving the information from my therapist that my family was dysfunctional, that that's where my self-hatred came from. And no one said, hey, how are those male dance teachers treating you? You know, and and actually, um, the Richard Kutch and Richard Gain of North Carolina School of the Arts were convicted of decades of sexual wow. abuse about in 94, 95. And I graduated in 89. Um, so that was actually happening. And I never got treatment for the thing that was actually happening. And that that's the travesty in all of it. Yeah, I learned the phrase idiom of distress mm. in a conversation with Eliza Mondegreen. And I really like that phrase. I think it really sums up this. It's like the times, the zeitgeist, the time that you're in will yeah. influence the way that we express our distress, our pain. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it makes sense in a way that people would be subject to a similar pattern of mm-hmm. of expression, but also that the therapists or the helping professionals of that time would also be caught up in that thing that we are all a product of the time that we're in and there's a certain way of understanding the world and each other Mm -hmm. that we're all susceptible to and i think that that's one of the dangers of having this therapist as expert model 
Yeah. Because there's a limit to that expertise. There's subjectivity yeah. even within that, that, you know, learned, yeah. um, experienced relationship. Oh, there's subjectivity within statistics. I mean, there's yeah. subjectivity. <laughs> We're fallible creatures. Yeah. yeah. And, um, the idiom of distress. Oh, I had a thought about that. Um, Oh, maybe it'll come back to me. Mm -hmm. Ninja Kitty mm -hmm. says, good little hubby. Yes, he is a good little hubby. He's very <laughs> sweet. It brings me coffee. <laughs> yes. I know. I like it when he brings you your little drink. It's so nice. <laughs> He's a sweet I guy. Just, I just find myself, Karen, hearing that and just, I mean, to be so blinded by a narrative, you know, practitioners. Yeah. And I, you know, there's probably, oh, that's what I, was I don't say. even want to just say like in this domain, I, there's probably multiple domains where people get on a narrative yeah. and it just, yeah narrows the the field of awareness and yeah. how much in any domain but it, the fact that it's someone's psyche is like it feels even more egregious i just yeah. i'm kind of shocked like i'm still sitting here going like i can't believe that wasn't dealt with yeah. um and asked about like i just well it didn't I, fit i believe you obviously you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, but but it's it's it's, it's just shocking it's <laughs> well it didn't fit in the psychiatrist's yeah. office in the in the medical model you know, it was, chem it was my chemicals that were yeah. out of balance, which of course the SSRI theory has now been debunked even by the researchers themselves that created it. Um, <laughs> not that bipolar is necessarily just about SSRIs, but, um, or treated by SSRIs, but, um, but that, and then also my experience, I mean, it really could have nice fit, but they never asked, you know, it really did not fit the overlay of the ritual abuse. Um, and ironically, I guess I'm thinking about it, it was ritual abuse. We, you know, I was in a dance, uh, just to go into the details of it a little bit, it feels important for whatever reason, but to the extreme of it, I mean, I guess if I talk about the extreme of it, you'll see about why it's so heinous that no one asked is that they had been at the school since its inception um, they were Martha Graham dancers. So they were like the top of the field in the forties and fifties. And, uh, they were a gay married couple and they were teachers of the modern dance program. And all of us had to wear bikinis at 16 in unheated studios in the winter where they would hit us and cover us with bruises. And I was going to the counselor at the school at the time telling them this was happening and nothing was done because this was just the way it had been. And they would also have parties and invite the high school students and then seduce the male students and treat them differently in class. And it was just known this is what happened. So it was a, it was a much like a ritual culture of abuse. Um, and the people, again, counselors, um, did not say anything probably because they wanted to protect their jobs, I would imagine. So this should have been asked about, it would have fit nicely in the narrative. I wanted to say, I realized the thing that I wanted to say is that th I think the similarity to the current uh, gender dysphoria issues and how therapy is captured is that there's a, there's a righteousness Therapists can feel like, oh, I, I'm saving mm -hmm. someone. Yeah. And I think that was the therapists were like, oh, we've discovered this deep infiltrating force in our culture and we're going to root it out. There's a moral righteousness that comes with that. And then we get blinded until proven wrong or the authorities step in. 
but it doesn't it seem like it has this moral component zealot almost it does and i also think that therapists especially when we're early in our training we're sort of vulnerable because we're trying to be good students we're so eager to be good therapists and we want to be competent and seen as competent so whatever the sort of prevailing notion is Mm -hmm. we're very quick to adopt that we want to adopt what the experts say so that we too can be experts and Mm -hmm. i think we need to be willing to be seen as foolish yeah in order to question things we have to appear be willing to be to appear foolish to appear like we lack knowledge so that we can really do a much better job for our clients. I remember, I, so I used to, um, I did my internship at a sexual assault center where we worked with people who had been raped or sexually abused. And so many of the clients were children. And at that time, it was thought that if sexual abuse occurred within a family, the goal to work towards was family reunification. So get that offender back in the house. And we used to say with all confidence that this was the goal because we'd been taught that. I never questioned it. And I'm very grateful that I was never in a situation where I was actually working to reintroduce an offender into the home. I did not experience that. So I don't have that on my conscience, but it is a phrase that I have uttered. And it came to my attention later because a lot of mothers started to really struggle and push back against that and indeed even go to court to try to prevent these offenders from gaining access through their kids, whether if it was from visitation or joint custody. And I thought, oh God, you know, we, we made a mistake here and it was a pretty sizable mistake. Mm -hmm. And yet there is still within the profession, whenever a therapist says, oh, wait, I'm not quite certain that we're taking the right approach. The people turn on that person, their heads whip around like, oh, you're bad. You know, I was told in very condescending terms at my former workplace, the model for gender dysphoria is affirmation. Like that is the model. Therefore the model must be right. And if you question it, well, then you're just really an unsophisticated, unskilled therapist is the sort of message floating out there. So I think we need to be more humble and more questioning. That's interesting from a personality psychology perspective, because Mm -hmm. um, I know that therapists tend to be highly agreeable if you're using the big five model. And I really, Mm -hmm. really like the big five. We actually did for Benjamin's live stream yesterday, we, we did a couple's big five analysis and kind of went <laughs> over some of it. And it's interesting, we use Jordan Peterson's and the way that they break down agreeable is with compassion and politeness. Those are the two, two aspects of agreeable that they use. Compassion being, you know, you feel for other people, you really care about other people's problems, you know, you're nurturing, etc. which that's, that's a very, that is a natural reason why a person might seek to be a therapist or be in the helping profession in any ways, because they genuinely care about helping other people. But the other aspect being politeness, which according to the way that this, this particular uh, inventory is, is um, 
uh, I guess, graded is based on social conformity and conformity and desire to be like, to be uh, proper in the setting that you're in. So it's a compliance measure, basically. How compliant are you? And so that's really fascinating. So if you have a bunch of people who are highly compassionate, but also highly compliant, are you, you are, that's the recipe for groupthink right there. Mm. Mm. So we need more therapists with difficult oppositional personalities. Well, I was, well, surprised, I to find out that, I was surprised to find out that I'm low on politeness. I was like, I'm very polite. What are you talking about? But then I, I read how they graded. So it was interesting. I guess it's encouraging. I was thinking, I, I don't know. I've done the DISC personality, which I think is based on the big five. And I am not compliant at all, which maybe explains why I'm sitting here talking with you all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, I think, I, I think we're going to face something like this in the future where, um, the process that we've been indoctrinated in as a therapy community is going to be suspect simply because of the egregious medical, physical outcomes for people. I, I hope that we are held accountable, that our field is held accountable. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Has anyone, or it would be good for one of you, I mean, if anyone's ever even written or mused upon this whole compliance thing and, and the problems of that within the community. I mean, maybe this particular issue will be a place for that to start to be examined or something. Interesting. Yeah. Because maybe the thing that I'm working with, with supervisees and ideological oasis is to help them fight against their compliant natures and, and not only disindoctrinate, but encourage disagreeability and, um, and openness to new ideas, although they might be open to new ex experiences. Um, but I was struck with what you said, Jennifer, about looking foolish. That's exactly what is the hardest thing, I think, to help my supervisees do is to be wrong and fail. We talk a lot about failing and being wrong and um, and what's our ethical responsibility and what's what's... Uh, what are the standards of care and, and how that all dances together, but that it's okay to try things and to not follow the, the, the homework rules and just be act on your intuition. Well, yeah. There's like a frame of hypothesis testing or something like, cause there's this like, Oh, I'm foolish. And there's another of a stance of, um, I'm going to test something and it's not necessarily like, oh, I'm so dumb. It's more like I hold myself in a certain way. Well, I'm going to try this and mm -hmm. we'll see, we'll get results. And then, and not, you know, I don't, I don't know if that could pre prevent collapse <laughs> around being foolish. <laughs> I like that idea. It reminds me of Jonathan Heights. Um, was it Jonathan Heights that talked about the culture of dignity and coddling of American mind that we've moved from a culture of dignity to a culture of, I think, victimhood. I can't remember what he said, but it reminds me of, it makes me think that maybe helping them understand there's dignity and not knowing and that there is um, safety and not knowing, just mm -hmm. to flip that word a little bit, that it's actually better not mm -hmm. to know, especially when you're a therapist, it's better to not go in the room knowing. You, it mm -hmm. really is about exploring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you, th if you already think you know, then you miss things. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like what, you know, to circle back to the ritual abuse overlay is me in the inpatient treatment center, having really gone through something and never being asked because there was this overlay of a chemical disorder for me in my case, especially. Mm -hmm. Going into the chat, 97 cents says introducing alters sounds like introducing genders and pronouns. Exactly. Like yeah, that's, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I got that sense too. Like a Mm. And interesting, it, it is about identity. Like there are other aspects of myself I get to introduce. And I wonder why we need that. Well, Michael like says it's good to feel superior Sorry. to others. Mm. That's another thing. I think that there is that. Yeah. That is a part of human nature. Sorry, Deborah, I talked right over you. I was say, I mean, also with, I mean, they don't necessarily talk about it as alters, but I mean, it seems like eternal family systems is a taken off quite a bit. And so, so many people are in this mode of, I have parts. I mean, they may not go so far as to think they're in one and then they switch and they don't remember the other one, but it does seem kind of in vogue to be considering one has parts. And I don't say that that's completely invalid either, but there's there's something with this fragmenty kind of way of, and then you've got the Twitter bio, you know, little words that go in there. Like there's just something, this postmodern thing of like, identifying oneself with separate things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> that wasn't very well articulated <laughs> well the, these are my groups these are my little uh uh what's the word gestures towards belonging that uh, you can like a piece of jargon that you can see that i belong to this community or that community it flattens experience basically Yeah, I was thinking about IFS when we were talking about DID, which so multiple personality disorder became dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. So interestingly, it kind of became more medicalized. I think it went through an evolution and, and became more medicalized. Um, and the thought is that uh, there's so much trauma that 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 self, that age that experienced the trauma breaks off and becomes an entirely new identity. And sometimes it can be leading, which is also interesting about pronouns and self, right? That, that they become, the different alters become primary. And then significantly there are time, time loss blackouts um, where you don't know what you're, what you're doing or where you are. So I, I do think that disorder exists, but much like gender dysphoria is extremely rare and it did become in fashion, much hmm. like gender dysphoria. You know, yeah. tick disorders are on the rise yeah. now, mm -hmm. especially in adolescent girls, um, because they see people making videos on TikTok and Instagram um, exhibiting their tick disorder. And <laughs> so it has caught on and become kind of cool. And it gives you, I think people want that sort of um, a bit of a special distinction of having a disorder, which then becomes sort of a solid identity to hold on to, because you know, when you're adolescent, everything just feels like sand shifting underneath your feet and you're exploring different identities. You know, what's really interesting about that is did all of this obsession with being different by being broken happen about the time that we flattened the competitive awards you know like we we have like this trophy for right. everybody you can't be special by being good so maybe yeah. you have to find another way to be special mm. 
I like that thought, Leslie. I was thinking something a little bit similar. It's like, um, I was thinking about the industrial revolution actually, and how school became created to great, to make great workers, factory workers. And that, you know, and factory workers do something over and over and over again, that somehow there's a loss of identity in that. And that maybe it goes back even to the um, pre 20th century when the industrial revolution was really happening. I, I was, as I was reading about satanic panic and thinking about it, I was actually thinking about Dickens um, and I swear this will relate because, um, you know, Dickens novels are filled with these horrific, abusive adults and they're misguided and they're terrible and um, childlike in their obsessions of abuse of the child. And the child is always the very calm, clear seeing adult. And I, I just, I've, I feel like it was sort of a, I don't know if it was prescient to what happens when you make children workers um, that maybe there's this something shifting in society about the way we, we view children. And maybe that's, it has something to do with the satanic panic and then hmm. gender dysphoria. I, this is not a complete thought, but I've just been percolating like th there's gotta be some relationship to children and the way we view them and the way this is evolving. It seems to me like there's sort of, I've come into, you know, I've been part of a lot of different spiritual communities and um, in the sort of more, I'll just say new age as a sort of a catch-all. In some of the more new age communities, there's this idea that, you know, we're born, we're just completely pure and we know things and we have this great amount of wisdom and then gradually society poisons us and we lose that. And we've got to try to meditate and do all this stuff to gain it back. And that's nothing against meditation. I'm a meditator. But <laughs> it, some of the language that I hear around the gender issue reminds me of that. Children know who they are. Your child will tell you who he or she is. Like they're these all-knowing creatures. Mm -hmm. I think, And they're sort of our guides, you know? Mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting way of framing childhood. And it's an interesting paradox too, right? Because they're also supposed to be broken. Like they, they have the best, most connected knowledge, but then the more traumatized they are, or the, you know, from their point of view, the more status they receive. So it's a strange dichotomy. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Two Ladies Midwest Adventures says, I'm curious, do you feel we have lost meritocracy in our schooling to some degree? I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I don't have kids in school right now. So I see what I see from the outside. I think we're all probably in that position. Um, my kids are homeschooled. So, um, but uh, you know, that's not, that, that wouldn't have been the first thing I would have gone to in criticizing what's happening in education. And that's not the reason that I don't have my kids in school. There are a lot of other reasons, but do you have any thoughts on that? it's a little schizophrenic like there's both like there's still this pressure like my kids say in the wealthy whatever upper class like to get the kids into the best school and like competitive competitive but then at the same time mm -hmm. we're supposed to not be because that's not equitable and we're not being good you know white allies or something so I I, I think people are there's got it I don't know if there's cognitive dissonance but I think there's a weird simultaneity mm -hmm. of 
people sort of upholding it or wanting this, at least the status that would come with it and mm -hmm. then sort of thinking we shouldn't be into that. Mm -hmm. um, and like, I don't know what people are forcing their kids to be doing right now. I don't know. Well, there's been court cases in um, Fairfax County. I, I'm forgetting the name of the school. Maybe it's TJ Williams. I can't, or Thomas Jefferson. I, I can't quite remember. Yeah, but um, a school where you, uh, kids had to have, you know, very, very high skill levels and test store scores to get into this high school. And they decided there um, weren't enough people of color in the school, the powers that be decided and therefore moved it to a lottery system, resulting in um, a number of legal cases. So I do think that there are people that are absolutely trying to destroy meritocracy, but, um, and probably some of those same people who would um, try to, at least on the surface, you know, through signage in their yards would try to pretend to be one of those people, but they'll fight tooth and nail still to make sure that their kid ends up on top. So. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that it, what you're bringing up, I'm, the culture around children, Karen, that's, mm -hmm. it's really quite fascinating. We do have a very strange relationship with, with childhood, mm -hmm. you know, so there's like this infantilizing protectiveness and also this elevation of the child mm -hmm. to this level of, of self-expert. <laughs> so those yeah. things are contradictory and yeah. they're <laughs> happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. And um and where is the idea of scaffolding and mentorship in all of this and mm -hmm. another thing that i think is interesting and maybe this is for a, another conversation i don't know how much we can get into it but um something that i've been noticing more and more recently is that there's this real bright dividing line in terms of certain things that are these are for children and ch or, or these are for adults and children can't know about them so in the um in terms of sexuality, for instance, we have a controversy over how sex education is being taught. And, and yet, and I, I agree with that. I mean, I don't want sex education in school at all. I don't think that it really belongs there. I, I, I don't mind a little bit of anatomy, physiology, you know, like this is how your body works. And maybe this is, this is how human reproduction works. But in terms of anything else, I feel like it, it should be off limits in the schools. I, I liked well enough how it was done when I was a kid, where we had one little class when everybody turned 12 and, <laughs> and then you move on. But um, there's this idea that I keep hearing about um, pornography and some other things that there's this line after you're 18, no holds barred, complete free for all, but before 18 protect you and shield you completely from that. Mm. And so I want, I wonder about that too. Like there's this, this dual nature of reality. Here's what's for kids and here's what's for adults. And how mm. are we, what is our moral identity as a society? If everything is completely on the table for adults and completely off for children, there's a very big fracture there. Mm. And I would rather see something different. Mm. I, I mean, more morally speaking, I'd rather see adults exercise restraint as well and not just have some kind of like, oh, it's all Pandora's box after you're a certain age. But but also that there should be some sort of induction process so that children are actually being 
being brought up to be a functional member of the society in which they will be an adult. So this behind the curtain thing is, is a strange phenomenon. I don't know if I'm articulating that in a way that makes a lot of sense. I, I like to use the word, I think you said mentorship or scaffolding. And mm-hmm. I, I, my thought is that it probably used to be the universities. I mean, it probably, that was part of the role um, inadvertently. Is that initiation process? Maybe we all went through who, those of us who went to university, um, but maybe not, maybe it isn't meant to hold that, hmm. but it, I'm, I'm contradicting myself, but perhaps if we're, if in, if it's used as it should be, we would be introduced to reason and complexity and intellectualism and nuance and debate and all of those things create confidence in our identity. They're not an, there's not an essential identity that gets corrupted. It's created and it's created through discourse and exposure and that's not happening for sure in academia now. But I wonder if it was before. That's interesting. You bring up universities. I was not someone who was able to go to college as a mm-hmm. right out of high school. I was poor and I didn't have that mm-hmm. option. I went to college in my um, late twenties mm-hmm. as a single mother. I put myself through college. So for me, mm-hmm. there was, that wasn't an initiation thing. And that seems to speak yeah. to a certain class and a certain mm-hmm. time. Like mm-hmm. there's a certain middle class perhaps that would have been, I don't know. I was never in the middle class as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but also when I went, when I did go to university, my experience of being in a in a private university where a lot of the my uh, fellow students were living on campus doing the whole Greek life thing was that it was utter debauchery there. It was just a complete drunken free-for-all and these people were not taking their education seriously at all. And there wasn't any mm-hmm. mentorship in terms of adults mm-hmm. trying to help them. They were just mm-hmm. trying to get through their classes with a hangover. Meanwhile, I was working my ass off to... Yeah you know, actually take my work seriously. So mm-hmm. I don't know that is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that's fascinating. And I think that there's, there's a lot to explore there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think to, I don't know if this is related, but to circle back to belief and what do we believe, you know, and, and the, the, the vulnerability of the therapeutic model Okay, this is where my thought process was. I was thinking about Ivy League and the strata of Ivy League and Harvard. And then I thought about John Mack, who was the psychiatrist who interviewed UFO abductees and became convinced that that was true. And, um, and you know, he was, he gave thousands of hours of interviews and treatment to abductees. Children, there was a school in South Africa where children saw UFO um, supposedly, and he interviewed them and, um, his work was discredited. He was, it was, uh, there was shame that was on his career. Um, and then he won his case. So there's, I'm just thinking about satanic panic and forensic interviewing. And then, um, where do we put John Mack? Was he revealing some big underground culture issue or, or was he really doing the same thing and perhaps infusing an overlay of, some big scary thing we can't prove. Okay, I know I'm meandering, but you know the uh, systemic social, systemic racial injustice, and could be sort of like that big scary satanic monster because we can't prove it. 
and there's it's only a theory and it's something we're all really scared of it's sort of like it's taken its place like ufo abduction mm -hmm. um satanic panic now there's racial injustice systemic in injustice just brainstorming here what do you think i think it's fascinating i think uh um i know we have to go because jen has her group um Ooh. But I'd love to maybe get into that more at some point. And um, 97 Cent says, this subject of the building of adults is super interesting. I'd like yeah. to see a whole hour on it. I think mm. that would be great. I realize as we're talking, uh, and I'm reading these comments, and I'm getting really tangential, I'm reminded of this, uh, this uh, actually was a teacher in high school who was this world, he was a history teacher. And we all knew if you could get him talking about World War II... <laughs> you'd never get back to the topic at hand so you wouldn't have to do your work. And so we would all try to get him on a tangent and then he would just go. And I realized that I'm kind of like that guy because we always end up on a tangent and I'm more than happy to take us there. So sorry, we 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 do that. But it's I, I think it's related because it's about believing children. It's yeah. all about belief and believing children. And then how do we give them accurate mentorship and tools to navigate reality? I mean, I think it's all the same thing. Thank you for, for tying that back in. Yes. <laughs> Well, any final thoughts, y'all, before we wrap up? No, Jennifer, just no spicy take, Jennifer. <laughs> Aaron, for coming and joining yeah. us. Yeah, thank you for listening to my story. Next time, I'll have to talk about the cult. I'd love to yeah. hear about that if you want to share. Yeah, <laughs> totally. All right. It's been a rich life. Well, thank you all so right. much for being here. It's been really great. And uh, thank you, Karen, for joining us. Thanks thank in the chat. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye.